This is Gareth Southgate, and this is the Three Lions Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Three Lions Podcast. My name is Russell Osborne and this is an independent England football supporters podcast. Here we are, we're back with another episode looking at our Lionesses. I'm sure you've noticed that they have been in action this past week. Three games in quick succession in the inaugural Arnold Clark Cup held here in England. Uh, Without giving too much away... It's been a very successful campaign. Uh, we'll go through it all in a moment with the inputs from our resident Lionesses correspondent, Rich Laverty. First, though, just a quick one. Uh, welcome along if you are new to the podcast. And as always, if you're a regular, hello to you. Hope you're keeping well. Does feel a little strange to be putting a podcast out at a time like this again when the world is a little topsy-turvy, but kind of think life goes on, doesn't it? We have to get on. We have to move on and keep going. Uh, But I'd like to think that this just comes as a little welcome distraction to the continuous rolling news out there. I don't like to get too much involved in political matters here, but let's just hope that things can be resolved as soon as possible. Uh, Having been to Ukraine in 2012 for the European Championships, I found it to be a wonderful country, really hospitable people that I met in both Kiev and Donetsk. So, yeah, really hoping that things sort themselves out there and everyone safe and sound. Going forward, though, don't forget the podcast is available on various social media channels, Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. It's also on YouTube. Just search Three Lions Podcast. Give it a follow on either of those if you don't mind. Uh, And if you haven't done already and you're tuned in via iTunes, why not leave a little review? This is episode 189. And I think with the episodes that I have pre-recorded already... I think we'll hit 200 very soon. Great achievement. Uh, And it is because you continue to tune in. So once again, thank you very much. And if you do have an idea for the show, which is how some of the previous ones have come about, by your ideas, feel free to drop me a line. Email 3lionspodcast at gmail.com. It is always great to hear from you by that method. And a couple of things that you may have missed since we last spoke, and both concerning the senior men's side, with the Qatar World Cup, what is it, nine, ten months away? The senior team have dealt, or the the senior team, uh, probably the staff of the senior team, it's the FA, isn't it? The FA team have done a recce of the country, and they found a base in Qatar in which to settle, hopefully for the uh, five, six, seven weeks that the tournament takes place. Uh, They're staying in a place called, you're going to have to correct me here, Al-Wakra, A-L-W-A-K-R-A-H. Give it a little Google. Uh, I've had a quick look at it. 
a class it as a city, uh, but from my perspective, that looks like a town. Population of 80,000. It's 10 miles south of Doha, and it sits on the shores of the Persian Gulf. Nice. And this is where the team will have their hotel and training ground. And then before the World Cup, we have our Nations League matches. And we know that the game against Italy on the 11th of June, well, that's going to be played behind closed doors. Punishment for the troubles caused at the Euro finals last year. Then on the 14th of June, it's a Tuesday, we play Hungary at home. And it has been announced that both of these games will take place at Wolverhampton Wanderers Molyneux. Now, nearer the time, we'll have a guide to Wolverhampton. It's a ground I've not been to, so I am looking forward to that one. But it'll be the fifth time the senior men have played there. The last time, back in 1956. England's women, on the other hand, well, they'd never played there before, up until the 23rd of February this year, when they played their final Arnold Clark Cup match. So that sounds like an ideal time to look at how that competition panned out. Time to speak with Rich Laverty. Welcome back to Rich Laverty. Hello, Rich. Hi, mate. You okay? Very well, thank you. Busy few days for you. Yeah, it, it flew by actually the last week or so. Um, three games, three zones, caught up in a couple of them. Um, so yeah, it um, it actually sort of came and went that tournament very, very quickly. Yes, well, yeah, I one of those storms I was caught up in as well. We'll, we'll sure we'll come to that, but let's let's go from game by game. First of all, we were up at Middlesbrough for. Uh, England against Canada. But before that, there was Spain against Germany, which ended uh, one apiece. And, and as with a lot of these games, by the last one, it was a, uh, they're all very, very close score lines. Um, but you saw both of them. What did we make of it up at Middlesbrough? Um, I th- yeah, it was, uh, I think, like you said, they were all close games. I think we expected that between four teams that are in the top 10 in the world. Obviously, everyone had sort of their own little different priorities going on you know everybody had key players missing for one reason or another but I was really looking forward to Spain Germany um I think I said at the start that was probably the game I was looking forward to most and it was interesting really but both sort of started a little bit sluggish which I think maybe to be you know not not a shock Germany actually played well I mean Germany were very hard to judge this tournament because they had more players missing than anybody they had you know over a dozen players missing from their squad um, some of whom were quite key players like Marajan, Leopold, etc. Well, they, they played, I mean, they got in behind Spain. Um, Sarah Darbritz had said on a pre-match press conference they thought they could get at Spain in transitions, and, and they did. They were just very wasteful um, when it came to chances, and then Spain grew into it a little bit, um, took the lead, and, and then obviously Germany equalised late on. I probably thought a point was fair to be honest, um, in that game. But it was enjoyable. Like, it was it was end-to-end. Both teams were having good chances. And then as what pretty much happened in every game, all six games, was obviously second half. Tons of substitutions. It all gets a little bit disjointed. But obviously, that's part of what the tournament was about, for every player to get a chance. And 
I think that was sort of a theme throughout the tournament that, you know, the second halves, it all became a little bit more, not chaotic, but a bit more transitional, a bit more open, you know, as there was so many changes from both teams. So, yeah, I think probably a point was just about fair in that one. Yeah. And then England against Canada was later on that evening. Initially, I I read a few comments online and and you never really know what, what to believe, but people were sort of surprised about um Serena starting 11 perhaps being weaker than the uh than the bench but we as you say we always knew this was going to be a a rotational competition um and uh and and we've done well I thought one one apiece there yeah it was uh probably a little bit frustrating in some ways because England started that game really really well um they were on the front foot I think Canada Bev played things down a little bit, understandably, because a lot of their players were in pre-season. They're gearing up to a tournament that's 18 months away rather than six months away. And But they're always tough to, to beat Canada. And that's what has won them an Olympic gold medal. Um, yeah. They're always very, very difficult to break down. And, you know, England didn't have tons of chances, but they got into a lot of good positions. And, and for the first 45 minutes, really, for me, controlled the game and, and probably played as well. I'm going to say as well as they've done in a while. Obviously, we can't really judge the last six, seven games in comparison because they've not played top nations, but it was certainly their best performance against one of the top nations. And, you know, the second half, it just, again, all the subs, you know, the, the changes, it just it just affects the flow of things a little bit. And, I mean, I say Canada came back into it. I don't think they had a huge amount of chances. I think it was obviously a superb goal um, from Janine Becky. Not, nothing anyone could really do. Yeah. About it. So, yeah, it was a good point. I mean, it was a good performance, but I think it may be a tournament. It would have been interesting to see if England would have closed that one out because obviously they wouldn't have made the level of changes that, that they actually did. Yeah. Um, Mary Earps, as you say, England had a, a great first half to the point that she wasn't really tested. Millie Bright got the, the goal. Fabulous uh, volley. What was she just wasn't on the, the edge of the box, but almost... To, to one side of the uh, of the penalty spot, I think Lauren Hemp sort of started as she she meant to go on um, in this competition with those real positive runs. And there was a bit on on the telly. Emma Hayes on co commentary was saying this is exactly what what the game needed. Those the uh, the Canada goal to see how England would react. Uh, potentially, yeah. I mean. I- I don't know, maybe if it's me reading too much into things, I think you probably react differently in the heat of a major tournament. Mm. Um, you know that it's, you know, you've got to go and win the game. Um, obviously, in a friendly tournament, it's not quite that same pressure to, to, to go and find the winner. But I think, yeah, I mean, Millie Bright was very good throughout the tournament. Obviously, like her goals sort of got the headlines, but she was very good defensively as well. Lauren Hemp was, you know, a constant threat throughout um, and I think there was you know I'm sure we'll come on to it the other games as well but I think throughout the matches there was really a lot for Serena Wiegmann to be pleased about um, and you know she said at the start of the tournament she wanted information on players information on how players play together and, and I think she put some of them in certain situations to to see how they'd react and um, I think she she will have taken a lot out of it to be honest yeah the the next game was at Norwich. It was the one the game that I went to. Wet and wild um, was pretty much what I uh, what I came away with that one. But it was a uh, a debut for, for Hannah Hampton in goal. 
Um, Lauren Hemp hit the post um, after coming on at half time. Um, I, I mean, obviously playing against Spain, we know what Spain's capabilities are and, and how good they are. But to uh, to hold them hold them there, I, I thought was a good good performance. Yeah, ironically, that's the one I didn't go to because I just the eight hour round trip didn't appeal to me. Funnily enough, <laughs> um, with the weather forecast, so we yeah. decided. I mean, a few of our colleagues had severe issues getting back from Middlesbrough um, on the Friday when the first storm hit. So we were like, yeah, we're not doing this. So um, I was an armchair uh, reporter on Sunday. Yeah, I mean, that was always going to be for me the toughest test, I think, in terms of obviously Spain's strength. The fact they didn't actually really rotate that much through the tournament. You know, they went quite full strength as, as they could in every game with a few mainly in defence, a few changes here or there. The midfield three, I think, started together every game. Um, and yeah, England played well. I mean, Spain had a lot of possession, but you obviously expect that. Um, when Athenia came on at the second half, you know, they were a lot more threatening. She had an excellent game. But England did well, you know, I mean, considering the changes they made, you know, I was a little bit worried, I'm not going to lie, before the game when I saw the midfield of, of Scott, Nobbs and, and Stanway, you know, playing against Bonmati, Guiaro and Alexia, but they did well. You know, Jordan Nobbs had some nice moments. I thought Jill Scott was excellent against Alexia. Like you say, you know, England did have chances, particularly in the second half when Lauren Hemp came on and yeah, it would have been nice for her to score um, at Norwich where she grew up. But yep. um, yeah, I, I think the pleasing thing was the, the probably the clean sheet because defending was not England's Forte, let's say, um, when Phil Neville uh, was in charge, particularly towards the end, they were struggling a little bit to keep clean sheets. But you know, they they kept Spain out. So, yeah, I think overall that was that was quite a positive point. Yeah, the, the follow up game was Canada against Germany, which Canada won by a goal to nil. Yeah, again, Germany sort of were the ones that struggled to break that Canadian wall down. I mean, they had a lot of pressure, a lot of chances. Maybe if they'd had some of their more experienced players, you know, their they're sort of starting 11 players, they would have done. Um, but, you know, Canada, again, they, they did what Canada do. Um, you know, they kept the team out. They they were solid throughout the tournament, like you'd expect with, with Giles, with Buchanan, with Lawrence. I mean, Buchanan was unbelievable through the tournament. She was fantastic against England in particular in the first game and, you know, they took their chance, you know, when it came. And, you know, at that point, we were all sort of talking about how Canada were going to rock up, you know, and win this European tournament, despite the fact they were out of seat. And then, you know, obviously they played that down. But I think here in Europe, we we knew Canada would be a threat because they have that way of playing. And they are so difficult to break down. And, and obviously England did and, and Spain did in the end. And, and Germany were the ones that, that didn't. But... I, I Germany just looked a little bit disjointed. I saw a few fans, you know, weren't very happy. But I think, I think you have to take the caveat that they did have so many players missing, and and I mean they've got so many exciting young players, and, and they got a great opportunity this tournament. And I think you know I wrote about it before the tournament, and I've written about it since that maybe this tournament might be a little bit too early in terms of the Euros might be one too early for Germany. But I think you know I saw plenty in their young players that. I think they're going to be a big threat moving forward into into future tournaments. Uh, I think we said on the uh, on the last episode that uh, you can never write the Germans off, regardless no. of uh, of where they are in their uh, in their situation. Uh, and we we moved on to the last game. I think 
by then Germany were were out of contention. Uh, the last game at Molyneux in, in Wolverhampton started with uh, Spain against Canada, um, of which Spain Spain won by a goal to nil. Yeah, and that was probably Spain's best performance. Um, Canada started that game quite well, actually. They had a few chances and then Spain really grew into it. Um, they were a massive threat. They were playing the ball around, you know, little triangles and, and really giving Canada problems. Obviously, Alexia scored. And, and to be honest, I think I said at the time, Canada were probably happy to be in one just 1-0 one at the break because Spain were really starting to control it. Um, Canada came back into it second half naturally. Obviously, they were pushing to to try and get the the equaliser. Spain were trying to just see it out because Spain obviously knew you know that they had a chance of winning the tournament if they won that game. So, um, but no, that that was probably given the opposition and given how tough Canada are to break down. That was probably the biggest statement Spain made in that tournament because. They were actually, they weren't creating like tons of clear, clear chances, but they were getting through them, getting around them sort of as as easily as I think I've probably seen anyone do that against Canada, um, certainly since Bev's been in charge. So, yeah, I think, you know, Spain, there's things to work on with Spain. Like a lot of people have obviously bigged them up as as the, the red hot favourites because of the amount of Barcelona players. But, you know, it is a slightly different team, different manager, different way of playing, but... I think if they play in the Euros like they did that sort of first hour against Canada, then, you know, there's every chance that I think they'll be right there at the end of the tournament. Right. Uh, and then we went into the the last game where it it was in a, a little strange situation that people were talking about if the results went a particular way, uh, the trophy may be given out on the basis of yellow card turn. <laughs> But uh, yeah, England England played Germany in the last game, and obviously ended up with a uh, with a three one win. Once again, there was a, a few a few rotations. Ellie Roebuck started, uh, although I, th- I thought she started a little uneasily. Yeah, uh, there was definitely one um, in the first half. She gave the ball away with a little short ball out from the back, but she made a couple of good saves. I think maybe that was to be expected, given she's not played for England for, well, since pre-Olympics. Obviously, she played for Team GB throughout the Olympics, but yeah, it was an odd one, really. We were all sort of talking about the yellow card thing and, you know, some of the people doing on-the-whistle reports didn't want that. Me being there, sort of doing a bit more focused on the day after, I was quite happy to see carnage potentially ensue. Um, (laughs) But yeah, it was funny because... We were all sort of talking about it and, you know, the potential that if England won 1-0 and, and got three bookings, then the trophy was going to be shared. But And obviously England went 1-0 up and you think, you know, you know, because every game had been 1-0, 1-1, 0-0. So you yeah. thought, you know, there's every chance this might end 1-0. And then they got a booking. Um, I think it was Alex Greenwood got booked and you think, you know, here we go, you know, <laughs> two, two, go. and then literally about 10 seconds later from the yellow card, the, the Germans bent the free kick in the top corner. So... As soon as we'd sort of started to think, oh my God, you know, this ridiculous notion of the, the teams lifting the trophy together, it was done and dusted because once Germany scored, that equation went went out of the window. So, um, yeah, it's ironic really because, I mean, it was a nice moment, obviously seeing England win and, and seeing them, you know, celebrate with the fans. You know, we've had so many games with behind closed doors where... Fans have not been able to get close to the players, so for them to see that and witness that was was a nice moment. Um, but if I'm being honest, probably second half, it was 
I think as disjointed as England looked um, in the tournament. And I think Serena sort of alluded to that after. I thought first half, again, a little bit like Canada, they were very, very good. I thought England started really well. I thought they deserved the opener. It was a really nice goal in terms of both the build-up and the finish. And again, I wrote this this morning in my summary, probably just looking at a little bit more of a killer instinct, you know, when you go 1-0 up to then, you know, put, and it's not easy, of course, you're playing Germany, you're playing Spain, you're playing Canada, you're not going to go and win 3-4-0, but, you know, just to maybe have that bit more ruthlessness. And then again, you know, the subs and everything like that, it, it just became a bit scrappy, again, a bit transitional. Second half, um, England struggled to really create. And then, obviously, Millie Bright, the centre-forward, popped up, and, and that was that. They, I mean, it, she, she was offside by, I don't know, an inch or so. But do we know why there wasn't VAR in, in the competition? Uh, we don't. Um, I, I don't know, to be honest. I think maybe they just thought it's a friendly tournament. Um, mm. I mean, obviously, yeah, they, they could have used it. I think all three grounds obviously have it in operation as Premier League grounds. Um, I'm delighted they didn't. But yeah, it was. I mean, I didn't actually know Millie Bright was offside at the time. Sort of, we were all caught up in the carnage a little bit because yeah. we'd spent the previous five minutes going, "What on earth's going on?" At the sight of Millie Bright suddenly being the the lone centre forward and, <laughs> and Lauren sort of going in at left back, and uh, before we'd kind of had time to really realise what was going on, uh, Millie Bright had stuck it in the back of the net again. Yeah, nice finish. Yeah, and and then Frank Kirby with a uh, a great injury time goal, a little run from inside our own half to, to finish it off. Yeah, and then Fran had sort of a quietish tournament, really, and I think Serena was kind of experimenting, like a few managers have now with Fran, in terms of where's best for her with England. Um, she played out on the right in the two games she started. For me, it didn't really work. It's a difficult one with Fran, because Fran's sort of one of those players you just want to give a free role to. And she kind of has that with Chelsea, you know, around Sam Kerr and and Penile Harder. She can kind of roam, do what she wants, drift around. And she kind of ghosts into spaces. Whereas I think international football, it's, it's kind of a lot more structured in terms of tactics, in terms of approach, because quite a lot of it is aimed towards defence. You know, defences win tournaments. And if you're solid you're going to have a chance of winning a tournament. So, you know, England kind of played 4-2-3-1 throughout, quite rigid. And you don't always get the best out of a player like Frank Kirby in that way. But I think I think as a number 10 is probably where we'll see her. Um, I think it was worth a worthwhile experiment. That's what these tournaments are for at the end of the day. And that right-wing role is probably one that's open at the minute. You know, you've got Beth Mead. You've got Nikita Parrish, you've got Alessia Russo, you know, whether Chloe Kelly gets back from, from injury, who knows? But you look at the left and you go, Lauren, you know, if Lauren Hemp's fit, Lauren Hemp's playing on the left wing. So she probably tried that out, thought, you know, can I get Kirby out there and, and someone else at the 10? You know, she tried Stanway there. But yeah, it, it didn't really work. And then we saw, like you said, I mean, it was it was obviously very stretched. Germany were going for the equaliser, but you know, she ran straight through the middle went past a player like she wasn't there and scored the goal. And, and that's what Frank Kirby does best. So I think in the Euros, if, if Frank Kirby's in the team, I think it's more likely going to be probably as the number 10. Right. So there we go. In- England came out winning the uh, winning the cup on goal difference. It's a great achievement, but I don't really want to get too carried away because 
because I say it's it's just a friendly tournament and and we only drew two and and won one game, but there are still a lot of positives, which is what it's all about. We've we've beaten Germany for the first time on home soil. We're still unbeaten under Serena Weigman. There was the obviously the not the emergence of, but but Lauren Hemp really showing us what what she can do. Um, and there was there was Kira Walsh and Leah Williamson playing well together. What what else can we look at? It's coming on, isn't it? But um, yeah. <laughs> well, Arnold Park literally is coming on because it is our tournament. So, uh, but no, you're, you're right. Obviously, like um, it's you know it doesn't guarantee anything of the European Championships. No, there were really good signs. Um, uh, again, I wrote about this in my summary that I think most positions, I think Serena will have learned something. Um, I think defensively, we looked quite solid, given we were playing three of the best teams in the world. You know, we conceded two goals and both of them were, you know, unstoppable strikes. Yeah. Um, I thought Millie Bright and Alex Greenwood as a centre-back pairing were excellent. I think the full-back, you know, bronze... She struggled a little bit. I mean, she's coming back from obviously injuries. She's not played a huge amount of football for England. She had some good moments, particularly going forward. I think the left-back spot is still open a little bit. But, you know, I think it's going to be hard. I mean, Steph Horton, whether she's at the Euros or not, we don't know. But I think it's going to be tough to split that pairing up now. Yeah. Um, Brighton Greenwood are doing so well. Williamson and Walsh, like you say, I think for me, that has to stay. You know, Leah, midfield is not a position we have a humongous amount of quality in depth. And I think if, you know, Williamson can go and play her natural position, you know, she's probably needed there more than she is at the back where you've got Bright, you've got Greenwood, you've got Horton maybe to come back. And, and look, if, if needs must, Leah can obviously go back there if, if for some reason we lost somebody else. But I think they work so well together. They're both so good on the ball. They both read games really well. They have a connection. They've come through the youth teams together. They know each other's games inside out. Um, and I, I would be very confident in any England side that has those two holding down the midfield. I think further forward, I think Hemp's quite set in stone. I think Ellen White's quite set in stone. Kirby probably is the 10. I, I do think the right wing spot is open and the goalkeeper spot's probably there to fight for until the end of the season. But yeah, you know, there were good signs definitely in the way England want to play. There's things to work on. Like I said, I think they need to be, they need a more ruthless edge um, in their end product. I mean, Hemp was was outstanding throughout the tournament, but maybe need a bit more of an end product in terms of goals and assists. She's getting that in the WSL with Man City. Um yeah, we, we, you know, she got into some good positions and, and it didn't always lead to a chance, but she's 21 years old. I mean, I think people think Hemp's older than she is because she's been around for a long time now, but that sort of says it all. You know, she's been around the top level since she was 16, so it, it makes it feel like she's older than than she is. So there's a long, long time, you know, I mean, Hemp, when she gets to mid-20s, you know, she's going to be scary. So, and if Chloe Kelly does get back and, and she's anywhere near the form she was last season, I mean, her output, for goals and assists for Man City was scary. So um, there's a lot to be excited about because beyond that, you've got, you know, still young players like Russo and, and Toon and, and Stanway, etc. So, you know, that you, with those three, with Hemp, with Kelly, you, your attack's sort of set up for the next 10 years and, and they will only, all of them will only get better. So if they can stay solid at the back, 
And I do think that's the main thing in tournaments. You know, I think we saw it with Italy at the men's Euros this year. Uh, last year, sorry. We saw it with Canada in the Olympics. You know, the teams that, you know, some teams go out, they score goals for fun, but, you know, they get knocked out when they come up against a, a solid team. And I think tournaments will always be won by the team that is the most solid. And that's what England haven't always been. And, and they're looking solid now. So, yeah, look, no one's saying England are going to win the Euros. They're in the pool of probably, I think, to be honest, maybe six, seven, even eight teams that, that could go and win it. Um, it's going to be incredibly competitive. I don't think anybody really has an idea with any said that there's not a clear favourite, um, which is good. It's good for the tournament. And, yeah, you know, good signs, things to work on. And, you know, generally overall, it was a, a positive tournament. Yeah. Just... Touching on the the Euros coming up in what five five months time, and the attendances, which I know has been spoken about a little bit um, of this this cup. Obviously, England had some some decent attendances. It was what eight thousand at Middlesbrough, fourteen at Norwich, thirteen at Wolves. But it was more the the attendances of the the other games that didn't involve England. Do we are we a little bit concerned about the the games that don't involve England in the Euros? Um, I'm not personally because I think there's caveats, obviously, to what happened in the last week with you know the the weird phenomenon that we had three storms in in seven days across the tournament, which obviously affects people wanting to go out to the extent that even I didn't bother going to the second round of games. That they weren't the greatest kickoff times. In the world, there was quite a big gap between the two matches. Um, we were told that was obviously through still COVID protocols and having to get everything cleaned, you know, all the changing rooms and everything between. I mean, there, there always has to be a gap in double headers anyway, but yeah. you, you, know, you can't just have one set of players walk off the pitch and the next set of players walk on. There's always going to be a couple of hours, but hopefully next year it can be a bit more condensed. I, I did think it was an error not to sell tickets you know for both in terms of yeah, you could buy tickets for, for both games um, rather than separate but I, I mean a major tournament's a major tournament you know it's a different phenomenon people will turn out but you know there will be some stadiums that look empty and, and but that's the same with any tournament I've been to when I went to the Netherlands in 2017 you know I went to I remember going to Scotland v Spain and you know, it was half empty. I remember going to Sweden v Thailand in Nice, you know, and Nice was a, must have been, what, 50, 60,000 stadium. There was probably not even 10,000 there. And that's just a reality, you know. You're not going to have thousands and thousands and thousands of fans travel from all around Europe to to come to England. You know, it's, some people it's not logistically possible. Some people it's not financially possible. I think the England games will be absolutely full. I think some of the games will probably be more the acid test. I think games like Netherlands, Sweden at Bramall Lane, for example, I think if, if you can't fill out Bramall Lane for a game like that, or at least make it, you know, two thirds full, then that's a bit more of a worry. But, you know, if you've got a team like Russia v Belgium or, or Finland v Denmark, you know, that, that sort of, nations that maybe more casual fans don't know as much about, then, you know, it's difficult. So, you know, yeah, there might be some emptier stadiums, but I think that's natural and, and that's happened at every tournament that I've been to. So 
I think there won't be any issue with the England games, definitely. Um, and some of the bigger games. And, and as we get obviously to the latter stages, you know, as the top teams are playing each other in the knockouts, then I think the attendances will be fine. Um, ticket sales were going quite well, the last that I heard. So we'll see. Um, yes, there's definitely going to be some games where, you know, it looks a bit empty, but I, I'm not hugely shocked or, or particularly concerned. And even in the men's tournaments, you know, we, we've watched men's games and, you know, I watched men's games in the Euros. You know, obviously, remember when Wales were playing in? I mean, it wasn't ideal. Obviously, we playing in Baku, but yeah. there was what a few thousand there, probably in a huge sixty thousand seater stadium. So, I think that's just the nature of major tournament football, to be honest. Yeah. One other thing before I uh, I let you go, there's uh, two more games that I'm aware of before the tournament starts. Both World Cup qualifiers, uh, obviously, because this is all a little bit disjointed thanks to COVID. Um, but they're, they're away to North Macedonia on the 8th of April and then away to Northern Ireland on the 12th of April. I would imagine that there'll be another opportunity for, for people to get to a um, a game here in England. Are they likely to have a, a pre-tournament friendly? I believe so, yes. Um, I think there's going to be a couple, um, whether they're home or away. I'm sure they'll definitely try and get at least one at home. Um, to try and build up to the tournament. Yeah, those April games are a little bit, for everyone really, a bit in the way really because you're not going to learn a huge amount. You can't really use it as an opportunity to bring too many new players in because I'm sure she'll try and stick with the squad that she thinks will go to the Euros until until the summer and, and try and get them gelled together as much as she can. So, I mean, Northern Ireland obviously is a, a decent test in terms of you'll play them at the Euros, but we have played them a couple of times in the last year or two anyway. You're not going to learn a huge amount against North Macedonia. So, um, yes, I think there is a window for games in the summer because the tournament doesn't actually kick off until July. So it's quite late after the se- the domestic season ends. Um, so you've got the whole of June. Um, so, yes, I think there are plans to have a game or two, I don't know who against or where, but um, yeah, there will be, I think, potential opportunity for fans to see the team um, before the tournament starts. Good, and and just just one last thing: is there is there any player out there that you that you're aware of that perhaps can still make a uh, make Serena Vigman think? Right, you you've got a chance to be in. Who who could be the surprise player after this tournament? I think it's tough now. I think. I think every manager, you know, wants to settle on on their squad and, and what they're going to work with. Obviously, you have the caveat of injuries and, you know, history suggests, unfortunately, one player will probably get injured between now and then um, by law of averages. Obviously, you know, you've got Steph Horton, hopefully, to come back. And, and if she does, there's no doubt Steph will be in the squad. Chloe Kelly's the other one, maybe, you know, if she gets back fit and she plays enough games before the, uh, the end of the season, potentially, you know, you a woman boy at the back. But I don't see there being a huge amount of changes. I'm, if I'm being honest, if there was one that I would, I'd probably take Ebony Salmon in the squad. And she's still very young and, and, and obviously she's not playing football particularly at the moment um, because the NWSL season hasn't started. But the reason I would take Ebony is I think she's just a different option um, Ellen White's obviously a poacher. You know she holds the ball well. She's strong. She, you know she'll score goals. But I look at Ebony and and having worked with her and having watched her, I genuinely haven't seen anybody in the women's game that has her raw pace. 
And I think, you know, if, you, if you're bringing someone off the bench in a tournament like that, when, when people are tiring with 20 minutes to go, 15 minutes to go, and you just suddenly look at, you know, can we get the ball over the top, you know, for, for someone to run to? I don't think there's a defender in the world that can have the, the, the pace that she does. So I think she's a really unique option um, to have in a squad and whether she goes or not, I don't know. But I think if I was going to take somebody else, I would want somebody that has different attributes to what's already in the squad. And, and I don't think there's a player that, that's probably as different as Ebony at the minute. So if there was one I was going to put in, it would probably be her at the minute. There we go. Ebony Salmon, watch this space. Uh, Rich, thank you as always. Um, maybe, yeah, we can catch up in April when those World Cup qualifiers come around. Yeah, not a problem, mate. Thanks for having me on. Thank you to Rich for his time there. As always, you can find him on Twitter at RichJLaverty. And his writings in these football times and also... Our Game Magazine. And no doubt we'll speak to him again once those World Cup qualifiers come around. Now, as I said, I'm not getting overly excited about winning the Arnold Clark Cup. Yes, fantastic achievement and well-deserved. But cast your mind back a little way, if you don't mind. 2009, we won the Cyprus Cup. Then later on that year, we made it to the finals of the 2009 European Championships, where we lost to Germany. 2013, again, we won the Cyprus Cup. We then went on to finish bottom of our 2013 Euros group. We didn't win a game that year. And then more recently, 2019, I'm sure you remember, we won the She Believes Cup. Phil Neville got all a little bit excited about that, didn't he? We then lost in the semi-finals of the World Cup in France. I'm not saying history is going to repeat itself, but I think it's important to keep our feet on the ground. Just for the time being, there is still a long way to go. And there have been some other tournaments taking place whilst the women have been playing their games. Just to quickly cover those, there was the She Believes Cup, which was won by America. Uh, Iceland came second, the Czech Republic third, and New Zealand bottom. You may have read about this one. There was a particular game uh, in which New Zealand lost 5-0 to the United States. An unfortunate incident happened there, and I guess could happen to anyone. Um, Liverpool's Michaela Moore of New Zealand, she scored a hat-trick of own goals. It was, in fact, a perfect hat-trick, left, right, and with the head, but terribly unfortunate. There was the Tournoi de France, which is the same format as the Arnold Clark and the She Believes Cup. France won that one, ahead of the Netherlands, Brazil, and Finland. There was the Pinatar Cup, uh, which was held in Mercia in Spain, uh, an eight-team knockout tournament, which was eventually won by Belgium, they beat Russia on penalties. Wales, they lost their third place match to the Republic of Ireland and Scotland. They finished fifth. And the Algarve Cup, I think I actually mentioned this in the, the previous preview episode. I didn't think this was taking place this year. Uh, I was wrong. Five teams took part in the Algarve Cup this year. Sweden, they won on goal difference ahead of Italy. 
Portugal, Norway and Denmark also took part in that one. So ahead of the, the European Championships coming up this year, all the big teams have been in action over this past international break, all just trying to tweak their team ready for the tournament. Now, before I round off this episode, I just want to give a quick mention to Block 109. Regular listeners will be aware of them. They don't just help to make the atmosphere at Wembley better on match days behind the goal there, but also they are continuing to raise money for good causes via their charity draw. You may have seen a recent draw where they don't know where they put it out on Twitter, where former England international Phil Thompson pulled the numbers out. Uh, you can give the guys a follow on Twitter at England Block. 109. And you can join in the draw and stand a chance of winning a cash prize. Just get in touch with them. Uh, and I also noticed that they are intending on running a supporters coach to the Hungry Game at Wolves, which we mentioned earlier. So, yeah, really well done to those guys. Give them a follow. Block 109, a proper fans first group for England. I don't think there is a better block for atmosphere on a match day at Wembley. Thank you very much for tuning in. Just to let you know, on the podcast front, we've got the next instalment in our World Cup series coming soon. We've already had the early World Cups episode and the Switzerland 1958 one. That was where I was joined by Blackburn Rovers legend Brian Douglas. I'm pleased to say he'll join me again for his memories of going to and playing for England in Chile in 1962. Also coming your way in March, I'm going to speak with an England national team manager about an important upcoming match. And then, of course, we'll have the preview for the friendlies against Switzerland and the Ivory Coast. All very exciting. And it's all coming your way in March. So make sure you stay subscribed. You won't miss them. So until then, look after yourselves. Stay safe. Cheers. Cheers.